This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. What has happened to our country? We are a nation that is rooted in that fateful Mayflower landing spurred on by Christians seeking religious freedom. We're a nation whose Ivy League schools were established by Christians to educate clergy as at Harvard and spread the Christian faith. In fact, it's been noted that 106 out of the first 108 colleges in America were formed by Christians and built upon the foundation of the Bible. My, how times have changed. And now we're looking across the spectrum and seeing violence in the streets and racial animosity, Marxism, atheism, moral filth, the breakdown of the family, and even the redefinition of biological reality. It's all to destroy the image of God present in male and female in that particular movement. And along with that, we also have a growing apostasy in today's churches. We see a lot of that as well. How can those of us who belong to Jesus Christ stand firm in these days until he returns? It's really an important question. We're going to talk about it today with David Harrell. He is the senior pastor teacher of Calvary Bible Church, where he has served since 1984. He's a former associate professor of biblical counseling at the Master's University and author of the great book. We'll be talking about why America hates biblical Christianity, pursuing Christlikeness in times of mounting hostility and apathy. That sounds like a great solution. David, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you today. Well, I appreciate your stopping by because I think this is just a great title. It's a great book, but Why America Hates Biblical Christianity. I think a lot of Christians are saying, boy, they really do hate us. The Lord was right when he said that they're going to hate you because they hated me. How do you assess our current situation right now in America in that regard? Well, obviously, the hatred is growing exponentially. It's really frightening to see this, but it really shouldn't hap- surprise us in ultimately because we know, like you said, that the world is going to hate us because they hate Christ. Right. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is a church that in many ways has lost its discernment and has lost its, its voice when it comes to really presenting the gospel because the only thing that is going to in any way impact uh, all of the, the chaos that we're seeing and the hatred in the country is the preaching and teaching and application of the true gospel Amen. of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're right about that. I know there are a lot of different things we could bring into that discussion, but for example, the seeker movement that was so popularized by Bill Hybels and others, but maybe originally with Willow Creek, maybe before that Robert Schuler. but what kind of effect do you see the seeker movement having had on where we are right now? Well, the seeker movement, unfortunately, has compromised so much with the true gospel that the church has become man-centered rather than God-centered. Yeah. And therefore, the, the, the gospel gets watered down. You try to be more relevant. You try to attract people to the church. And what you end up doing, and this is what's happened, uh, the churches have grown greatly, but unfortunately they've grown 
with false Christians, with pseudo-Christians, with people that are Christian in name only, because they they don't really understand the gospel. And Jesus warned about this, that not everybody who calls me Lord is going to enter the kingdom. And, And that's really the sad legacy of the seeker movement. And therefore, you get people in the church who are either unsaved or, at best, they're babes in Christ, and they have no real discernment, and everything continues to get compromised and watered down. And we know, according to the Apostle Paul, that to the natural man the things of the Spirit are foolishness, he says, and they cannot understand them. Not that they Mm -hmm. will not, they cannot, because they're spiritually appraised. And so with that going on, when you have all of these cultural movements coming towards us, uh, everything from the LGBTQ mafia and the, uh, the, the false narrative of, of critical race theory and systemic racism and all of those types of things, they come at us and people really don't know the Word of God well enough to know how to even understand these things, yeah. much less stand up against them in a godly way in a way that that truly honors Christ and presents the gospel. So that's kind of the legacy in a nutshell of the of the uh, pragmatism that we've seen in evangelicalism over the last um, a couple of decades at least. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what we're seeing, the man-centered churches with lots of pseudo-Christians and maybe baby Christians who haven't been taught the Word of God. And you know, it's interesting when you say that, it reminds me of some of these surveys that have come out. There was one in particular that said, most pastors don't want to address anything controversial from the pulpit, but most parishioners want them to, or a good number of parishioners say, I wish my pastor would address some of these things like the gay agenda, some of these things like abortion, CRT, some of these other things. And I think that's interesting, too, that now you have the sheep hungry for truth, but in large measure, the pulpit that's not providing the truth and and teaching and preaching the word of God as it is, you know, important for people to be fed in the pews right now on some of these issues. And that's that's a problem as well. It really is. And I I agree with you completely. In fact, uh, that is one of the main reasons why I wrote this book is to help people in the pews be able to connect to the dots with what's going on in the culture, in this world, and Bible theology, an understanding of, of really, you know, what, what is happening from a biblical perspective, because I'm hearing the same thing from so many people. Well, our pastor doesn't want to address these things because he doesn't want to get political. Hmm. But what he doesn't realize is these things are theological. Yes. These are doctrines of demons. And our people need to understand uh, what's being taught and how we need to stand up against those things from a biblical perspective. And most people simply do not realize that, you know, we've got two opposing kingdoms warring here. We've got Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. And the thing that Satan does is he tempts us. Uh, he gives us false teachers, false doctrine. Um, scripture tells us that he is the, the, the God of this world. Uh, he is the one that, that has veiled the gospel to the perishing, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, and on and on it goes. 
And so our dear people are out there trying to figure out what is really happening here and what does the Bible have to say about it. And it's, it's really frustrating to hear these things because the pulpit should be the place where these issues are addressed. And sadly, they're not being addressed. Right. Well, well, that's that's a problem. It's a huge problem because it seems not only do we need to address these issues themselves, but we need to address how the church deals with controversy and not just any controversy, controversies that are in many ways extremely significant for the life, the voice and the discernment of the church. In other words, if we don't get it right on these issues you've mentioned, that's a theological problem and that affects the prophetic voice that the church could even have in the culture, which is so desperately needed. No, you're exactly right. And isn't it wonderful to see, and I'm sure you've experienced this, to see people who have come out of these liberal precincts truly come to a place of saving faith. Yes. To see homosexuals come to a place of saving faith and be radically transformed by the power of the gospel. Amen. Of course, you're not going to hear any of that from, from the media because that's not a narrative that they want to hear. It doesn't fit their agenda and so forth. But that is the power of the gospel. And, and, and the gospel is more than just explaining, uh, you know, how to be saved, so to speak. It, it includes uh, the whole counsel of God. It includes all of Scripture. And when people really understand um, the Bible in terms of, of how they need to respond to all of these issues, it's exciting. And it empowers them with the only truth that can save and can sanctify. Totally right. Well, we're going to pause for a short break. Dave Harrell with us. Why America Hates Biblical Christianity is his great book. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mafford. We're partnering with Bible League International to send God's word to 1,500 Bibleist believers in Africa, in many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, and Mozambique. As many as nine out of 10 Christians are denied God's word because of corrupt governments, majority religions, remoteness, and poverty. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me, and now it will means so much to these Bibleist Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor John in Mozambique. One occasion, I found a pastor that was leading a church of 90 church members. And he was having one Bible that was starting from Exodus and ends to the Ephesians. And he was leading the church with that Bible. So, when we went to give them the Bible, imagine joy. They sang, they danced, they cried, and they praised God for the gift of the Bible. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20, $500 sends 100, and your gift of any size will help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
actually the, the need is great if you could remember the other picture of a lady who was trying to show me the bible that pastor i understand you work with bible but we don't have bibles here so that, that, that lady had a Bible from Exodus to the book of Hebrews. That's all. You see that? So there is a great need of Bibles. Send God's word to a Bibleist believer in Africa today for only $5. Call 800-YESWORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us. It strikes me that these days there are a lot of people who like to put an adjective in front of the word Christianity. It's been true for a long time. So we'll hear about cultural Christianity or today we'll hear about progressive Christianity or emergent Christianity. What we need to be about is biblical Christianity. We need to follow the authority of God's inerrant word and every word that comes forth from the word of the from the mouth of God is what we ought to be following. Dave Harrell has written a great book about this. He is senior pastor, teacher of Calvary Bible Church. The book is called Why America Hates Biblical Christianity. And Dave, maybe a definition would be good to issue on this case. I, I've seen liberals online, for example, say, we don't even like this term biblical Christianity. Who are you to define what is biblical? And this kind of talk. What, what would you say biblical Christianity really is? Well, biblical Christianity is Christianity that embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness and in all of its glory. It is uh, Christianity that that is authentic because it truly believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, all of those types of things. And that's why I titled the book, Why America Hates Biblical Christianity, because it doesn't hate unbiblical Christianity. It loves that. Yep. And Satan is the master deceiver. He loves to sow tares in amongst the wheat. And again, as I mentioned earlier, um, Jesus warned that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so it's very important that people understand that there is a true Christianity and there is a false Christianity. And this has been uh, consistent with what we've seen historically ever since Pentecost. And the Lord has warned us about this. And unfortunately, today, we have a lot of people who attend churches, who call themselves Christians, but they, they really don't even understand the gospel. Yeah. They, they don't understand their need for a Savior. They don't understand the holiness of God that would cause them to cry out for His undeserved mercy. They don't understand that all that they are and all that they do are fundamentally offensive to a holy God, that they're in desperate need of His mercy. And only when a person is, uh, is aware of these things will he come or she come to a place of really crying out for God's saving grace. Yeah. And we know that when that happens, uh, we're given the gift of faith, we are born again, there's that, uh, that instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Uh, we become new creatures in Christ. The old things pass away, the new things come, etc., etc. And you begin to see then th- this new life manifesting itself in, in, in Christ-likeness. And so the true church is going to manifest those types of things because they've been truly born again. And the, re- the reason why they're truly born again is because they truly understood um, the depth of their sin and the glory of the cross. 
That's right. And so it's a very important distinction that I think needs to be made. Oh, I agree. And we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And that makes us citizens of heaven, not citizens of this world. Going back to your theme, as you say, the primary theme of Scripture being the kingdom of God. Another issue, too, that goes along with this is the issue of authority and who makes the rules. If we're back in the days of the judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes, which seems to be the prevailing sentiment of our day, then the Christian looks strange. And the Christian who says the Bible is God's word and that's it. And, you know, I believe what the Bible says and the Lord is authoritative over my life in every single way. He is king. He is Lord. To say Jesus is Lord these days is more controversial, I would say. Well, can you speak to this issue of the kingdoms having different ideas about authority? Well, sure. Satan does not want the Lord to be our authority. He wants to usurp that, and he is the one who deceives, who distorts, and provides his own authority. And that's why you see so many churches today um, compromising and not uh, obeying the inspired Word of God, which is, as, as Paul uh, told us in what's Second uh, Timothy three that all Scripture is inspired by God is profitable for teaching, um, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and so forth. And so, <laughs> what has happened today is people have abandoned the authority of Scripture, which is a, a clear understanding of what God has said in His Word. They've abandoned that. And they've created kind of their own variation of the truth, and there's all kinds of variations. And ultimately what they've done, again, as Paul said, is they have, uh, because they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they have accumulated for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And he says in that same passage that they will turn away their ears from the truth (laughs) and will turn aside to myths. And what's interesting is when he says they will turn away their ears from the truth, uh, exegetically, that's in the active voice, meaning that they will hear the truth, they won't like it, and they will deliberately and consciously reject that. And then when that happens, he goes on to say in the next phrase, they will turn aside unto myths, and that's in the passive voice which carries the idea that the myths will take them over without them necessarily even realizing it. And that's what we're seeing today. People hear the truth, what God has said, for example, uh, about the gospel, or even social issues like, you know, abortion or LGBTQ or whatever. Well, they don't like that. That's not what they want to hear. So they find for themselves people that are going to tell them what they want to hear rather than what God has said. And then they turn away their ears from the truth and they turn aside unto myths. And that's the big issue today that we're seeing in the church. That's why the church, for the most part, does not have the level of discernment that is needed to effectively um, uh, address the issues of our day. Very well said. It reminds me of Romans 1, 2, talking about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and God giving them over to a depraved mind. I mean, we're seeing Romans 1 come to pass in our day. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about pursuing Christlikeness, Dave, in these times of mounting hostility and apathy, what would you 
uh, say is the most important way to pursue Christ at a time like ours. Obviously, Scripture is always eternally true, and we have all of those uh, admonitions in Scripture on to pursue holiness and to pursue godliness. But specifically, what would you say to the church about staying faithful in these times? Yeah, the the, the real key to this, I, I think, could be summarized in what Jesus said as he was getting ready to go to the cross there in John 17, as he was praying to the Father he prays that, that, that he would sanctify them uh, in, in truth. Thy word is truth. And so if we are going to be sanctified, if we are going to become increasingly more Christ-like, we must know the truth. We must immerse ourselves in the truth, because it is the truth that not only saves, it is the truth that sanctifies. And so the message to the Church today, real practically, is it simply must be committed to the, the in-depth, systematic um, teaching and preaching, uh, frankly, the exposition of the Word of God and the application of the Word. And you just don't see that a lot. No. You don't see people really hearing from the pulpit a very careful, exegetical exposition of the Word so that they know what the Word says, and, the, and so that they can be called to obedience to it. Yes. But unless that happens, they're simply not going to be sanctified. They're not going to grow in Christ-like maturity. And so that would be, I think, at a most fundamental level, what I would say, what I, how I would answer your question. People simply must be in good, solid churches that are truly teaching the Bible systematically, and in an in-depth way, and applying it to uh, the issues of, of their life, so that they can live those things out. And that's how God will bless us, that's how we're able to walk by the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says, rather than walking by the flesh, and then when we do that, we manifest the fruits of the Spirit, and so forth. Right. Yeah, that's all so important. I couldn't agree more with you. And when you talked about Jesus's words about the broad way versus the narrow way, that is always so convicting to answer mm-hmm. that important question. Am I walking on the narrow way, or am I on the wide road that leads to destruction? What would you say in that regard as far as examining ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith? Yeah, and it, you, what you just said there is a quotation basically from Second uh, Corinthians 13, where Paul was dealing with that very issue in the Church of Corinth. There, there were people, uh, as, as you recall, that were, that were probably unsaved, and he was talking about their sins that they weren't repenting of, the strife and jealousy and angry tempers, disputes, uh, I forget all of them, and, and some of them uh, had not Im- repented of their impurity, their immorality, immorality, their sensuality, all of those types of things. And so, in other words, they were living lives that were inconsistent with having been born again, with a new creature in Christ and so forth. And so what he told them to do in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, is to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And the, the way we must do that is, first of all, by, by asking ourselves, have I really come to a place where I've seen the horror of my sin and been broken over it and come to Christ uh, like the tax collector, you might say, yes. <laughs> unwilling to even lift up his head and beating his chest, you know, crying out for undeserved mercy? Yeah. Uh, or have I embraced the gospel and Jesus Christ as kind of a, 
uh, a religious thing, you know, I've prayed a little prayer or I've walked an aisle, but where we have to begin is, is truly assessing, am I aware of the sinfulness of my sin? And therefore, what, what God has provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly right. Dave, we're out of time, but thank you so much. Why America Hates Biblical Christianity by Dave Harrell. Thanks very much, Dave. You're listening to Janet Meffer Today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Hey, everybody. We are really grateful to all of you who have been helping us in our efforts with Bible League International to get 1,500 Bibles to Africa. This is all part of our Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. And thanks to you, we are getting closer and closer to that goal. We still do have a little ways to go, but you can help right now as we only have a short time left in the campaign. Again, it costs just $5 to send a Bible. A gift of $25 will send five Bibles. And if you can give a gift today of $100, you'll be sending 20 Bibles to Africa. Here's the number to call 800 yes word 800 y e s w o r d or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmeffer.com. We're going to spend a few minutes now to get an update on our campaign from Michael Woolworth, senior director of broadcast media over at Bible League. Michael, welcome. Great to talk to you again. Well, Janet, great to be with you to uh, share uh, what God is doing on the continent of Africa. It's here where Christianity is growing in the greatest numbers in the world, and yet at Bible League, we've ministered there for about eight decades. We notice a trend, and what is that? As many as nine of ten Christians in many of the places where we're called to serve cannot access God's Word. But you listen, your listeners are doing something about this. You asked me for an update. Let me give it to you. We set a minimum of 1,500. We want to put God's Word into the hands and hearts of 1,500 Bibleist believers, people that we know by name in specific villages in about a dozen of the countries, all sub-Saharan that we serve in currently. And so we've taken care of kind of the heavy lifting of making sure uh, the relationships are there, that the language will match uh, whatever the, the those Christians um, um, speak in the different parts of Africa that we're focused on. And we want to do this by uh, the middle of August. We've kind of set a day. We want to circle back to these believers and say, look, those those Bibles you're praying for, they are coming. Here's where we're at today. We set a minimum of 1,500, and we're currently at 80% of that goal, okay. Janet. So that means that 1,200 Bibleist believers, before we launch this campaign just a matter of weeks ago, will now have God's Word in their own language. And Janet, we never go into a village and kind of willy-nilly say, uh, anybody interested in the Bible? All of these are new believers. They've left all the isms you hear about on the continent of Africa. They're connected to a local evangelical church. They've been baptized, and they need a Bible, right? Just like you and I, open God's Word every day. And I listen, I thank Him every day when I can open it, and I've got something at my level that I can understand and grow in His grace and knowledge. And that's what your listeners have done to this point for 1,200 Bibleist believers. Oh, man. So we're so close to that goal of 1500. And we're really grateful to all of you who have donated to this campaign. Michael, I know some listeners sometimes wonder, how is it that Bible League can identify these Christians who need Bibles? What is the process for linking particular Christians with the Bibles that listeners sent? 
Well, we work with the under-resourced church. Here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean they're weak. It mean it doesn't mean they lack a love for God and for others. Those things are. It's just the opposite. They have great resolve for, to live for Jesus Christ. And as people come to saving faith, they know that Jesus is not to be kept to oneself. He's to be shared. And so we see this great wave of uh, authentic Christian faith sweeping the continent of Africa. We've been there for 83 years. And again, uh, we've we've got this um, wonderful thing we call Project Philip. Philip's the evangelist in Acts 8 who leads the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Christ. He's uniquely positioned to help him understand what he's reading. So in the spirit of that Philip, uh, Janet, we help create Philip's all over the world, men and women who are, again, uniquely positioned, embedded where God has them, and they can point people to Christ. They can disciple them and not just be there in the moment, you know, to see them come to faith, but to kind of disciple them in the years to come. And I've been in this role for several years now. I've circled back to many of the people that uh, that we even talk about uh, in this campaign. And I can tell you, they're growing, they're sharing Christ, and that's something your listeners should be really excited about today. Absolutely. Again, $5 is all it takes to send one. Bible. If you can help, you can call now 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. And as always, Michael, you have some great stories to share about what the Lord is doing in the lives of these Bibleist believers. Tell us a story or two about what's going on right now, just to kind of put a human face on the issue. If you toss the uh, words uh, Christian persecution in Africa in the news into a search engine, Janet, here's what you'll find. 17 Christians killed in one night by the infamous Fulani herdsmen in Nigeria. Second one, pastors uh, in uh, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo uh, falsely accused of leading uh, people to Christ. They've been in prison for that. And then a third one is 20 Christians beheaded by ISIS extremists in Mozambique. In fact, Mm -hmm. we have a connection to that story. Those were Christians that received Bibles in a previous campaign. They paid a, a dear price uh, in following Christ there. Uh, so what you see in, in the book of Acts with the early Christians, it's what we're seeing all over the continent of Africa. And let me tell you two quick stories that are related, one in Mozambique, the other in nearby Burundi. And both of these stories, these pastors left extreme Islam, came to saving faith. They went through church planter training from Bible League. We don't plan our own churches. We help those that are uh, planted on the ground there. And uh, they came to saving faith. Uh, They received theological training, became pastors, used uh, Project Philip Janet, led uh, people to Christ there. And uh, I can tell you, the reason we encounter a lot of issues is because we're trying to foster church growth in places where it simply is not welcome. And in uh, uh, this place in the Shai Shai district of Mozambique, Pastor Lumo beaten, jailed, his wife threatened, many in the congregation uh, threatened with death again, simply because he has been faithfully leading former Muslims to faith in Christ. But there is a need today for 150 Bibles there in Portuguese. Now, shift gears over to Brundy, small, uh, small country there that took a lot of the uh, refugees from the Hutu and Tutsi um, uh, genocide that happened in Rwanda many years ago, a man by the name of Nepo. He's preaching away one Sunday, Janet. All of a sudden, this ruckus. 20 extremists storm the pulpit. They drag this man out the front door. They beat him nearly uh, to death, certainly unconscious. And again, his crime simply in a very faithful and winsome way, leading Muslims to Christ. And I can tell you, there's great pressure on people when they leave Islam and they come to Christianity to revert back. But I can tell you, they're focused on Jesus and 
uh, Janet, there today, there's a need for 200 Bibles in the Karundi language. And listen, why is the Bible so important to them? Same way it is for you and I. We can open His Word. We can be reminded of His precious promises. And those that are persecuted can read what? 2 Corinthians 4.9. We're persecuted for sure, but not abandoned. Yeah. We're struck down, but we're, we're not destroyed. And one more Janet is Jesus saying in the Great Commission, what? I am with you always. And so I know this is something your listeners, they understand. I know, I thank God that my pastor has not been beaten. We've not had extremists storm the, uh, you know, the island to the pulpit where I worship. But I can tell you, we're praying today that your listeners will not turn a deaf ear to this need for God's Word. The gospel's going forth even in difficult places of Africa, and we get to step in their story for only $5 a Bible. That's great. And, you know, Michael, one thing that I always think about when you're telling those kinds of stories is, what if that were me? What if that were you? Yeah. What, what if we were the Christians living over there, suffering that kind of either discrimination or persecution or, you know, just living in a very tense area of the world? And we didn't have a Bible. We were believers <laughs> in Jesus Christ, but we couldn't turn to the word of God for comfort and solace and strength. And we were dependent on Christians on the other side of the world to send us a Bible. I mean, that alone to me yeah. is a motivation because we are a family and that, that is never far from my mind. No matter where another believer in Jesus Christ happens mm. to reside, we're a family. We're going to be together forever. And this is just a, a joy really to be able to share in the experience of providing a Bible to another yeah, brother amen. or sister in Christ. Yeah, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one part of the body suffers, we suffer together. But Janet, the Janet Mefford today listening family understands this. That's why we're 80% to our goal. I know we're going to hit that in uh, the weeks and uh, days to come. But that's how it gets done. You understand, how is how do you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus without a Bible? But when you have it, oh, to be able to claim those precious promises of God, to know that God knows us intimately. He's with us always, as Jesus says there in Matthew 28. That's right. That's right. Well, again, you can join in with this campaign. As Michael Woolworth said, we are about 80% toward our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. The need is great and the need is ongoing. And if you are able to help, we would really love to have your help. It costs just $5 to send one Bible and a gift of $25 will send five. Whatever your gift, we would appreciate your support. 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YE. S-W-O-R-D. And don't forget, if you prefer to be on the internet, as so many of us are, you can also head over and do that. There is a Bible League banner to click over at JanetMefford.com. Well, Michael Woolworth and your team at Bible League, we are so grateful to God for your work, and we will continue to pray for all of the wonderful work you do over in Africa. Thank you so much for being with us again. Well, thanks for keeping this before your listeners, Janet. God bless you. God bless you too, Michael. And thank you, listeners, for helping get Bibles to Africa. 800 Yes Word. We'll be back. Ask yourself what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a preborn center, it is a divine appointment. It's where she encounters the love of Jesus Christ and has the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her and find out that every baby's life matters. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. 80% of women in crisis pregnancies choose life after meeting their babies on ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible. And 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. Well, this is kind of an interesting development in the Islamophobia world, (laughs) so-called Islamophobia world. Ilhan Omar, who for some reason is still in Congress, despite all the reasons that she should be expelled from Congress, last week got together with Illinois Representative Jan Schakowsky and sent a letter to the Secretary of State urging him to create a special envoy to monitor and combat Islamophobia. Is that really the top need of the moment? Is there some outbreak of Islamophobia that's been going on that I've been missing? I mean, I think I read the news a lot. Well, it's it's just a good opportunity because you have a Democrat in the White House and you have the Democrats controlling Congress. So, you know, you, you get the radical Muslims in and they get whatever they want, I suppose. That's how it went under Barack Obama. Why wouldn't it go that way with his vice president, now president of the United States? This is, I don't know, I just don't even know what to say about this. This is via CNS News. This letter asked Blinken, Anthony Blinken, specifically to include anti-Muslim violence per se in the State Department's next annual human rights report. They joined several Democratic colleagues and CARE National Executive Director Nihad Awad at a press conference last week to announce this. Omar offered some examples of the behavior she has been confronted with. Ranging, ranging from having chewing gum stuck onto her hijab at school to telephonic insults and threats received by her office in Congress. Hmm. Gum was stuck on your hijab and that's a hate crime? That's anti-Muslim violence? How is sticking gum on a hijab violent? But she feels this pain on a deeply personal level, she said. I know that the discrimination many Muslims experience is not unique to the United States. It is a global phenomenon. Where? Omar referred to a U.N. human rights expert's testimony to the Human Rights Council earlier this year to the effect that institutional suspicion of Muslims and those perceived to be Muslim has escalated to epidemic proportions. Where? 
I mean, somebody tell me where, because I'm reading, I'm reading all this. I don't see this outbreak. In fact, when you go to the last several years of FBI hate crime statistics, by far the greatest religious group that is suffering from hate crimes are Jews. So where is this outbreak? Is there like an outbreak of people sticking gum on hijabs and making telephone insults? By the way, telephone insults, that's not just limited to Muslims because they're Muslims. She doesn't specify, though, at least in this piece at CNS News, what kinds of insults she received and whether or not they had any relation to her being a Muslim or if they were just general, you're a liberal. You know, I don't know. I'm not saying that you should call any congressman and hurl insults. I don't think that you should, but I also don't think that's a hate crime. And I don't think you need a special envoy to combat Islamophobia to police gum on hijabs years ago when she was in school. What is this all about? Uh, So they're pushing for Biden to reverse this uh, travesty and, and move on this envoy against Islamophobia. Okay, whatever. Well, let's talk about something else along these lines. This is via Front Page Mag. And written by Joe Kaufman, a Shulman journalism fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. The headline on the story is Florida Young Democrats Taken Over by Islamists. Hmm, This is very interesting. Here's what it says. For the past two months, a group of young and angry Israel bashers led by Central Florida anti-Semite activist Rashu Mubarak and under the banner of Florida Palestine Network visited the offices of various Democrat lawmakers to harass and bully them into supporting the group's irrational and outrageous demands regarding Israel and Jews. What is ironic is that Mubarak and others from the group are involved with the Democratic Party themselves. In fact, they have taken over significant segments of it. They will not stop until they have more. Will they be successful or will the party see through their bigotry and move to stop them? Mubarak is finance director for U.S. Representative Rashida Tlaib. Additionally, for the past two years, Mubarak has served as national committee woman for the Florida Young Democrats. During that time, she has worked hard to forge relationships with progressive Democrats in the Florida legislature. Lately, though, she has strived to destroy these relationships by assembling a group to not only demand that these lawmakers unfairly condemn Israel, but to bully them into denouncing a Florida law that protects Jews from anti-Semitism, a bill that the lawmakers, along with the entire Florida legislature, voted unanimously to support. That's an interesting development. One of the legislators, Mubarak and her group, have pursued with harassment is Florida State Representative Anna Eskamani, a former ally of Mubarak. An issue the group is upset with Eskamani about is that, according to the group, Eskamani has played both sides, equally condemning Israel along with Hamas, a group that Mubarak has cheered in the past. They complain that Eskamani has treated Hamas as a terrorist organization. Um, Okay, well, that's true. Yet Hamas is designated as such by much of the world, committing war crimes by hiding behind human shields and targeting civilians with suicide bombings and indiscriminate rocket attacks. Nuran Mespa is a prominent member of Mubarak's group. She's the director of inclusivity, diversity, equity, and accessibility for the College Democrats of America and produces inclusive language guides for the Democratic Party. She has roots in Egypt and Lebanon, and she tweeted that deceased senior Hamas leader, one of them, was innocent. Uh, In June, she tweeted a post made by the Hamas-affiliated Shabab news agency and mourned a Palestinian woman who was shot dead attempting to attack Israeli soldiers with her car and then her knife. 
Mesba says attacking Palestinians or their supporters to denounce Hamas is racist. If you ask Palestinians or supporters to say anything nasty about Hamas, that's racist. So last month, the Florida Young Democrats posted on Facebook a statement signed by them and the Florida College Democrats falsely claiming the Florida anti-Semitism bill criminalizes criticism of Israel. It made mention of legislative office visits Mubarak's group had staged in early June. One visit was to Eskamani's office, where the group harassed her staffer. Another was to Florida State Representative Carlos Smith, who spent over 40 minutes being attacked and ridiculed by the group. Smith, who is gay, accused them of homophobia, something Mespa has personally been accused of. According to Mespa, she authored almost 95% of the statement. I mean, what a mess. When Jackie Klein, who's the religious school director at Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, confronted the Florida Young Democrats about the one-sided nature of the statement and her knowledge of growing anti-Semitism, the Florida Young Democrats responded with a blasé reply and quickly deferred to Mesba and her extreme rhetoric. Mesba ignored Klein's concerns and moved to turn the conversation against Klein herself, wildly accusing Klein of denying the targeting of Palestinians and pro-Palestine activists by lawmakers, which is the fantasy narrative that Mesba and Mubarak concocted to separate the Democratic Party from what appears to be Israel's ever-decreasing Democrat advocates. Now, what Mesba and Mubarak fear most is that with this Florida law, they and their ilk will have a difficult time singling out Israel for condemnation on Florida university and college campuses, unlike in the past when they were able to do so at will. (laughs) Crazy. This law recognizes that the singling out of Israel for condemnation is a form of anti-Semitism and as such is completely unacceptable behavior within educational institutions or anywhere. Now, the article goes on to give more details, but the bottom line is that the Islamists have not given up. They have not given up. And it's just like gay activists in some ways when they can't do what they want done on the federal level, they go local and they've been going local for quite a while. This is a good question, though, from this author. Why has the Florida Democratic Party allowed Muslim extremists who use social media to post support for terrorists and push to overturn a law that protects Jews from anti-Semitism the ability to hijack significant segments of the Florida party. And not only have these radicals taken over large groups within the Democratic Party, but they are attempting to tear down popular elected Democrat representatives in the process. It is time for the Democratic Party to develop the chutzpah to confront and purge these Islamist bullies from the ranks of the party. People like Rasha Mubarak, Nurhan Mespa, and others are cancers, and if allowed to proceed unchecked, they will destroy the party from within. Would that really be a bad thing. (laughs) Destroying the Democratic Party from within. See, to me, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing. But the point is important that you have more and more and more radical elements entering the Democrat Party. And it's just amazing to me that more people don't leave it. It's weird. There, There are just people who will move with the times regardless of how insane the times have become. Oh, well, you know, 10 years ago, they were completely reasonable. Now they're like, hey, if a kid wants to get hormone treatments and surgery to become the opposite sex, I'm cool. What? 10 years ago, if I had suggested this to you, you would have, you know, been outraged. But now you've been worked on for years by propagandists and you're all in. Well, you can't have that. And and here, on the other hand, we have Representative Ilhan Omar trying to say the big problem is Islamophobia which is usually code for we said something they didn't like. That's how it is. 
We've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us on Janet Mefford today. Remember to help us in our campaign to get 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League International. $5 per Bible. If you can give $5 right now, please call. It's 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. 